Hi, I'm Shalise Millett. I'm here with Pamela Strowski. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Okay. Pamela Strowski, who wrote, It's Not That Simple. She has a copy. To, oh, I've got a little tabs too. So we're all tabbed over. It's Not That Simple, <laughs> Helping Families Navigate the Alzheimer's Journey. And she also owns Alzheimer's Family Consulting. Um, so we're just going to chat with Pam today, and um, she's going to help us navigate through a few things and, and let us know what resources are out there. Excellent. So Pam, how did you, how did you come about writing your book and um, starting your business? Well, uh, back in 2000, Christmas of 2000, I noticed my mom having unreasonable anxiety. She was getting excited about things that she should not have been excited about and wouldn't have been normal, uh, normally excited about and anxious, worried, concerned. And so I knew that something was changing for her. And so I moved my parents from New Hampshire to Phoenix. And my dad didn't really want to move here, but my mom wanted to move wherever I was at. So we went through flash forward six years of dementia. And then she became non-vocal in 2008 and was diagnosed in 2007 with Alzheimer's. And then dad had dementia at that point in time he was six years older than her. And so I was the person managing all of that uh, and learning along the way, making mistakes, learning lessons, understanding a lot more about the medical community and what they did. And more importantly, do not know mm -hmm. about dementia and Alzheimer's. And so after I kind of mom passed in 2015. And so after that, I, you know, took some time to heal and, and recuperate from the identity theft that happens when the loved ones that you've spent so much of your time obsessing around are gone. And so once that was done, I started writing uh, last year, I started writing, uh, um, it's not that simple, helping families navigate the Alzheimer's journey. And then people said to me while I was writing it and they were reviewing the drafts, why don't you start a business where you work with families one-on-one? -on -one? and um, work with them to develop a dementia plan. We do, you know, we do estate plans, we do wills, we do advanced directives and powers of attorney. It's the same thing. It's a plan for something you hope doesn't happen, but if it does, you're ready. Let's talk about that planning a little bit. Um, in my experience, and you, you, you mentioned this in your book more than once, people just wait too long. Yes. They just wait too long to start thinking about it. Um, yes. we see that a lot in our law office, by the time they're in full dementia, they really can't make these decisions for themselves anymore. Nope. Or, or they're, they're in a situation where they don't want to talk about it because they're afraid that it's going to happen to them. So absolutely. And I have difficulty understanding this because think here's an interesting point is that my parents, when I was 16 years old, I was I was in learning about TRICARE for Life and Medicare um, and <laughs> because they wanted, they knew I was the youngest, I would be taking care of oh, them. Yeah. And so that education process was great. But dad and mom never planned for dementia. So they just assumed they were going to die this peaceful death. And, you know, if they're going to die of something, it would be cancer or, or a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah. And then dementia hit and we went through 14 years of their money trying to handle financially then the medical decisions and not very many doctors know about it. And there's just so much to know and prepare for that it breaks my heart that so many people wait until their loved one is in the hospital. Or right. as you said, they show up to your office and they can't sign paperwork because people didn't understand 
when you're diagnosed with dementia, all your rights to sign anything go away. And I think part of the reason that people wait is it's a hard conversation to have. Yes. It's a really hard conversation to have. Um, and we like to talk about with our own kids and with our parents, we didn't like having the talk, you know, when we were teenagers, but now we're having to have the talk. And I love that you put into your, out in your book, it's not one conversation. Yes. Don't expect it to be one big, heavy conversation. No, it has to be multiple conversations because, and, and the other thing I mentioned in the book is that this isn't about you as, your, as an adult child. It's not what you want. It's not about your life. It's about their life and their care. And if you keep it about them, they're much more likely, like most people, to talk about themselves and what they want. And my family was always very pragmatic. So it, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't, wasn't a difficult conversation until it came to moving out. So we had all the paperwork, but then when I said, dad, you're not taking care of mom, you're not giving her the proper nutrition. That's bad for her digestive system. She just recovered from colon cancer. We, we really need to, to move to a place that will do a lot of this stuff for you. Well, I don't see any reason. He wrote me, a, you know, well, the three of us, um, my siblings and myself, a seven page letter um, with all of the points as to why he should not, they should not move. But at some point in time, I'm sure they could, but not at this time. Yeah. And I said, you know, that's why we need to talk about triggers. And that's the type of plan that I work with families on is what are the triggers? So if someone's not getting proper nutrition, hydration, they're not taking their medications, those are triggers to modify the way the care is occurring. Yeah. And, you know, so mom wouldn't take medication that dad gave her, you know, he did, she didn't want to follow what he told yeah. her to, you know, because it's a spousal relationship. You don't take direction from your spouse. Your spouse shouldn't be telling you what to do. It's demeaning and, and uh, it affects the quality of life of that relationship. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, all right, those are triggers. Now, what do you do in home care? Possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe it's time to move someplace where you don't have to keep doing laundry and cleaning the house and fixing dinner. You know, if those are triggers, those are also triggers, tired of doing those things, then maybe you should go to assisted living, which is what we ended up doing. Yeah. I love that you say triggers. Um, you know, we say signs that, mm -hmm. that, um, because if you're at, if you ask them, how are you doing on your meds? Oh, great. Are you eating all your meals? Oh yeah. I cook for myself every meal, you know, yeah, you can't ask those questions. <laughs> you can't ask. And it's hard if you're not with them to really see. So those are the things that you're kind of looking for when you go in, are, yes. are there water cups? Are they actually drinking, you know, stuff like stuff like that. And you talk about that in your book, that some like these triggers that you're going to look for if you don't right. live there. Well, and, the, and the, to me, the, the signs are when you don't see um, water glasses or you don't see, for, for me, the biggest trigger was I opened the refrigerator door and there was milk and in the freezer was White Castle burgers and frozen French fries. And then I opened the cabinets and there was soup and cereal. And I said, there's no fiber here. Mom needs fiber. Yeah. And so those are signs. Triggers to me are kind of that more, we have to take an action. Whereas signs are kind of right before triggers in yeah. my mind. So it's like, okay, we have a problem. Yeah. Right? Just like mom being anxious. We, we've got a problem. Freight trains coming down the track. What, what are we going to do? Right. Uh, and, and that's where the triggers are. It's time to take action, which is a little bit different. I, yeah. That's my viewpoint. At least. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Those are, those are all things we need to look at. Like we had one client who just couldn't take her medication, but she'd find medication around the house 
and take that. But are, yeah, it's scary, right? But our pill bottles are still full. Yeah. And, so and then there's the empty like, pill bottles that are scary too, right? Yeah. I didn't take my Xanax or, or you know, something really dangerous, right? That, right. that you know, and it's, uh, you, you look at the pill bottle. I've, I've had this, I've heard this story from, from uh, a client and she said, I looked at the pill bottle and there was 30 in there. We just refilled it last week and there was only 15 left. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and that to me is one of the safety reasons why a transition needs to happen and in-home care in that particular situation would not solve the problem. I loved what you said about the relationship that they don't want to take medication from their spouse. I think I also see that with children. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a proponent for putting someone in care. I, I, and honestly, I've had to do it with my parents. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I know it's heartbreaking to do. And there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of emotions involved in that. But what I have watched is that it, it kind of normalizes the relationship again, where you just get to be the daughter or the son right. and you can stop being the caretaker and bossing. And some of that will go away when you can restore that relationship a little bit to where it it naturally is being related to the individual and caring for them is the fastest way to damage the relationship. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you transition from being a spouse, a daughter, or a son to taking care of someone, you're then the caregiver and you get the abuse that a caregiver gets of, you know, of how they respond. And then they don't recognize you at all in the previous role. That's the problem with dementia. And so, and, and to that point that you mentioned, which I'm glad you brought up is the guilt of moving your loved one to a care community or a group home. I, I think about that a lot and, and it, it's starting to really puzzle me because it's like, no, you want the best care possible for your loved one. Odds are you're not it. And this is the only disease I can think of where you being related to this individual is, is not a positive thing. And I know, you know, God love the people who do stay home, quit their jobs, get training on how to handle dementia, and then um, understand how to, that is a 24 seven eyes on job. So they give up their lives to do that. But if you're not willing to do all of those things, then you're probably, your loved one's probably not getting the best care possible. So I use that as kind of a logic to help people get through that guilt. Yeah. Well, and they start to thrive. I think when they're with people who know how to deal with the disease Mm -hmm. and how to keep them functioning in the disease, they really kind of start to thrive even in the disease. And they're they're with their peers. I I just, I just talked with someone on Friday, um, two sisters, and they were saying, um, well, the place that we put dad, we, we need to be, we need to be comfortable hanging out there. And I said, uh, no, because these people are not your peers. Yeah. So he has to be comfortable after his transition period. Cause that's another thing. Family members say this, I don't like these people. I don't, I don't, I don't think it would be good for my parent. And, um, and they pull them <laughs> and that's the worst thing you can do with someone with dementia. I feel like, and I legally, they can't do this. And you would know this as an attorney, but I would, I would, love there to be stronger language when about moving into memory care specifically not assisted living but a memory care where someone is clearly mid to late stages um, alzheimer's or vascular dementia and we say when you move in we would really love you to sign a piece of paper that says you're not going to move them out for 30 days because that is the required 
it's just like when you take uh, flu medicine or any kind of medicine, you take the whole thing. Well, for transition, it takes 30 to 45 days and, and a week is not enough. And yeah. you're not going to see the best side of anybody as everyone is making this transition, getting to know your loved one, and then your loved ones making that adaptation. So I coach the family on their side of the transition to say, just chill for a while, let these people do what they do. And then after 30 to 45 days, if it's really not working, um, then then let's talk about another transition or moving. But most of the time where they don't have to do that, if they would just be patient. Yeah. And and what signs do you look for in a good home? What do you... So, so my number one thing is dementia certified caregivers or entire staff. So that means the people who are serving food, the people who are um, the, the custodians, the caregivers, the med techs, the nurses, everybody should go through on a regular basis, a certification program, not just like a lot of, some of the, some of the places have their own in home or in, in community uh, type of, of dementia training, but I would prefer if I were moving mom in today, I would ask what certifications, dementia certifications do you have and how, and do you make sure everybody has them? That would be my number one, because the challenges that I saw was that caregivers didn't, they were loving and kind and, and did all of the cares, uh, in, you know, tasks correctly. But when it came to, well, why is she doing that? Or I asked her this and she said that, um, it, it's, that's dementia. And so, you know, they learn how to redirect while they're on the job. So really having, having that, and, and to me, because in Arizona, care communities are regulated by the state and group homes, I don't believe are. So anything under 10 rooms, um, then you really have to ask that question. And you have to understand what stage your loved one is at if they're in your mild cognitive impairment, early stage dementia, um, then they're, they're probably fine no matter where you put them, except that they're now more frustrated and angry because they realize they're failing and they're failing in the worst way possible and that their brain is failing them. And so they're frustrated and angry, but they're with their peers. They're more likely to be distracted and be able to reminisce than hanging out with family. Yeah. And there's, there's an isolation with dementia and Alzheimer's that yes. um, they forget about the existence of other people if they're too isolated. And so mm-hmm. there's some, there, it, that social, that social aspect is really important. I think. Well, that. think about what happened with COVID last year. Yeah. People died of loneliness Yeah, because they weren't interacting with people who they could relate to. And the same thing, I find it hard to believe that the same thing wouldn't happen if a loved one is living a home alone, which a lot of that happens, yeah. or if they're living with a son or a daughter, or an adult child, uh, where the kids are all gone, and maybe that person is working from home these days, or maybe they're not. And it's like, well, what are they doing? Just sitting there watching TV all day. That's not enough stimulation. So it comes down to how high do you rate dignity, stimulation, engagement? I don't say socialization anymore because not everybody's a social person. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so I would be off in the corner knitting or putting a puzzle together, but I would be around other people. Mm -hmm. And that's what we mean by engagement and by stimulation is that there's visual sense, all the senses are stimulated when you're in a larger environment than just your own personal home. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and while we're um, kind of talking about choosing um, and the, the caregiving aspect, or talk about the caregiving side, um, I love that you normalize in your book some of the emotions that go along with the caregivers. There's resentment, there's guilt, there's exhaustion. All of that is so normal. And I think we need to normalize it for caregivers. Yeah. All of it, the resentment, the joy, the fear, all of that needs to be normalized. Mm -hmm. And so when you say normalize, can you tell me more about what that means? We understand that it's normal. It's a little bit normal to resent all the work it is and to, oh, would it be better if they just pass now versus wanting them to keep moving and, and feeling bad for those thoughts and feelings, but to know that they're normal. They absolutely are normal. So to normalize them in that yeah, most people in your position feel that way, but we're not talking about it. So you feel like something's wrong with you or you're not a kind person because you're having these feelings and these thoughts that don't feel very giving and kind. Right. And and that's why I talk about the, the whole chapter, the emotional roller coaster is, is really about, you know, it's okay to feel the feelings you do. Mm-hmm. And part of part of the reason why I think we do feel that way is because we haven't had a plan. We don't, we're not prepared for this journey. So even if I could get more people to read, it's not that simple and, and get an idea of what this journey looks like, they would at least say, okay, I have a guidebook. I have a handbook I can go to, should this happen in my life and, and have a bit more of a a saner approach, if you will, then when it happens and then you're in react mode, then you've got much more overwhelm and much more of a sense of being out of control. And that's when that spins off and then there's fear and that's what triggers all the other emotions. Yeah, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of the unknown and, and we don't know what we don't know. We've never done this before. Right, this and you probably won't do it again. So yeah, yeah, we've not, we haven't navigated it and there's not a lot of roadmaps out there for us to follow. So mm-hmm. we feel like we're just wandering. Yeah, yeah. Some of the other tools that, that, um, you know, that we see, or I'm sure you see a lot of it that we see taken on the care, um, the caregivers, um, is the suspicion that parents feel towards you, um, that you're trying to, uh, take advantage of them or take the inheritance. Like that's common because they don't understand what's going on. Um, and dealing with that, we see a lot of scam mail come in. We see a lot of identity theft that, families are having to deal with because they don't know everything that comes in looks like a bill. And so we see a lot of people come into our law office going, why do I have to pay this? I don't understand, you know, and no, you don't, it's not a bill. And so just kind of talking about that, the mom and dad can be to protect mom and dad a little bit that way. Yeah. And they monitor their mail, stuff like that. Well, and, and so that makes me think of the although I hate this, the way that people phrase it, taking away the keys, mm-hmm. it's ensuring your safety on the road, yeah. really. And so it's a similar thing where you're trying to protect them, but you also have to say, you know, what if there's, there's bad people out there? And I think most seniors understand that, but they do tend to be very trusting or uh, that they they don't know how to get out of the situation they've got themselves into. So they start answering questions like, what's your social security number? Yeah. And and because they, they panic, and especially when you have someone with early stage dementia, they can't sort out fast enough 
how to get out of the situation, like hanging up, right? right? So they get trapped. And that of course makes them more anxious. So, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, it's the same thing with driving when you shouldn't be. And like you said, with mail, email, you know, anything where they can be taken advantage of. Whereas, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, either in a group home or a care community and what the type of mail that they get, they, they at least can be monitored as to what it is a bit more. Yeah. It's kind of hard. Um, also caregiver exhaustion is a thing. I, so I have seven kids, so I, you know, I have, a, I've had a big range, but it is really kind of like having an infant and a toddler and a teenager, like all at the same time, like infant that if they're with you, you're not sleeping at 24 seven, you're worried. Are they up? You know, are they wandering? But, but toddler, like all alert, are they into anything? And then teenager, they don't appreciate you. And they talk back and they, they think you're out to get them, you know, but it, it really, that, that switch when, when they're home and, and just, uh, it, it really is like having all of them in your home at the same time. Well, and then there's the flip side of that. They've lived a very full life. They have accomplishments. They've purchased homes and vehicles and they've given birth or, or have had children and raised children. So the, the, the challenge we all have as caregivers is to not treat them like children. Right. And to not treat them like toddlers or teenagers, because they deserve dignity and respect. So that's what I work on with family members is here's the words you use. Say this, not that. Because ultimately using the wrong words will trigger that anger and that, and it's like, oh, well, dad's behavioral. No, you use the wrong words and we're insulting to him and he's reacting to it because you're not being respectful. So we need to figure that out. And so that's, I spend a lot of time having those conversations. Yeah. I, um, years ago, I, before we were even in this, you know, we've been doing this for almost 20 years, but even before that, um, I had a friend who was taking care of, or was watching her family take care of someone she was younger, but she did say, I noticed that, that he cannot remember their name when they come into the room, but he responds to them differently. And I think he remembers the way they make him feel. Absolutely. They, they don't, they don't remember, but something in their sense remembers this person is safe. They make me feel safe. They make me feel respected, but this person condescends to me and is disrespectful and just boss comes in and bosses me around. They remember that somehow, even if they, so emotions are the only thing that they tend to remember. Um, so someone with dementia, if you have an altercation or your family has an altercation in front of that loved one, when all is said and done and the dust settles and people walk away, they feel sad because part of it is that they assume it's them. They did something wrong or that they're, they're failing somehow they're failing the family. And so they remember that. And that's why I emphasize in my book and in my, my coaching is moments of joy. Let's focus on moments of joy. When this loved one's around, this is how this should go. That will also remove any opportunity to have anger and frustration uh, whenever possible. Uh, But it it comes down to using the right words Mm -hmm. and focusing on moments of joy and happiness. They're not going to remember, but these are your memories too. Uh, But it will, that what they will carry with them is this was a good day. Yeah. I had happiness today. I feel good today. And that's why my mom was so cheery and happy because she was, we just focused on moments of joy. 
And, you know, people who are, I've had people ask me, well, what do I say to my mom when I'm visiting? And it's like, don't say anything, go paint a birdhouse, you know, go listen to music and hold her hand or rub her back. You know, that's what a visit is about anymore. It's not about telling them about Johnny's baseball game and Susie's uh, piano recital. That's, that's not what is relevant yeah. to the conversation anymore. Right. And I think, and you bring this up in your book with some of your let it go language. I love all the let it go language, um, but it's also meeting them where they are. So if they're, if they're 10 and remembering that, then just be there with them wherever they are. It's kind they of usually, um, so the, the period of time that they will remember the most, if it helps people bring something with them is between the ages of 20 and 40, 35, 40. Because those are the biggest, those are the times when the biggest events happened. They either, you know, they graduated from college or they were off to the war, depending on how old they are. Um, and then they got married and had children and bought a house and bought their first car and, and they got a job and they got promoted. All of those things are big events and they tend to happen between the ages of 20 and 35 or 40. And so if you can find whatever period of time that is, in their lives and find mementos and different um, reminders of that period of time, they're going to reminisce a lot more about that and be happier. So that's another way to, to create moments of joy. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So let's, in your book, you talk about building your team. So important to have a support system. Too many caregivers are trying to do this alone. You don't have to do it alone. You don't. There's so much support out there. So let's talk about building a team and a support system and how important that is. Okay. Um, so building a care team specific to the, the care side of things, they can be, and the care team will evolve. So at early stages, you know, you have your primary care physician, you have your neurologist with a specialty in dementia, really important, uh, because the people who we trust the medical community and the bottom line is, is that unless you're working with a specialist in dementia, you're probably not getting the full story. And, and I've had doctors say that, you know, dement dementia causes this symptom or dementia causes that symptom. And it's like, no, it doesn't. Where did that come from? Yeah. And so we want to make sure that we have the right medical staff, nurses, social workers, people like me, a dementia coach to help the family members through it. Um, you know, an estate attorney, financial advisor, all these people are part of the team to answer the questions. And not only that, but each of those individuals has other resources that they can tap into. And then even with support groups. So I lead um, dementia Q&A groups, and I'm going to be taking that online as well to help the nationwide Excellent. services to caregivers. But I have one in Scottsdale and one in East Mesa right now. And my thought process, and I'm, I built it for me, honestly, because I figured there's more people like me, yeah. is when you're on this journey, you have lots of questions. Mm -hmm. But in a support group, what you're hearing is a lot of people and their emotions, they need to evoke those emotions, yes. they're emoting how frustrated or angry or sad or grief stricken or guilty yeah. or guilt um, ridden that they feel. And that's one forum. And then my dementia Q&A is more about, I'm in this situation and I'm frustrated. I don't understand how to fix the problem. What are your suggestions? And then we talk about what the answers could be. And then it's, account, it's an accountability group where once you go try this, go try this, come back and tell us how it went. 
And nine times out of 10, it actually goes pretty well. So it, it gives them relief. One less thing to think about. Oh, that worked. Okay, so now here's another thing that's happened. And, you know, sometimes they're in denial as to how they should address something. But, you know, having the that support team, that care team, that's just a plethora of, of different skill sets. And again, that group can evolve or, you know, if you're happy with how it's performing, that's fine. But at some point in time, you'll be involving hospice yeah. or in-home care or a, a care community where you would work with the executive director and the director of nursing and the med techs and the caregivers. All of those people are part of your care team as you migrate into that stage. Yeah. And it, it's a, one of the things that I love about this area of work is the people I get to connect with, the other people who are helping this, um, this demographic. Mm -hmm. Great people, caring people. And we love to make connections. We love to connect you with this person who can help you. I, I do anyway. Yeah, this person me too. can help you. Let me give you some numbers. I, I love that connection because I love rubbing shoulders with those people who are giving care like that. And they really are passionate about the aging population and how we can help them because it is real. It's happening and it's so hard. Um, so I love that. There, there are great resources out there and great people in this in this you know demographic line of work. And so ask, ask, who do you know that who do you know? And I would also kids. suggest to the people out there who are caregivers and people who are giving and giving referrals is caregivers, please, uh, please allow someone to help you by giving you giving your contact information to them. You're crazy busy, you're overwhelmed, you've got a full-time job now, and you may even have, if you have children and then you've got your parents to worry I, about, you are way overstimulated and overwhelmed. Yeah. So there's two ways for helping each other out and building your care team and sharing resources. One is to say, here's a bunch of phone numbers. You can, here's all yeah. the people, here's one more, here's five more things for you to do. Right. Or the easier way to do it, if it, you know, this is for trusted resources, obviously, yeah. is to say, here's my email address, have Pam reach out to me and set up a time with me. Yeah, that's what I tell people to do, because I was there. The yeah. last thing I needed was 20 phone numbers of people to reach right. out to because and then you don't reach them. And so email is the, the safest, oh, as I love well that. as the, the, the yeah. easiest way to do that. Yeah. And I always like to ask permission, like, would you like me to just have them call you as long as I have permission to do that? Yes. Totally you must have permission. Yeah. 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 But, but I, even I, an email is, is because to me, you know, I know this thing makes phone calls, right. But, um, <laughs> I actually use it more for text and email, yeah. um, because it's, I don't believe in interrupt interrupting people's yeah. lives. So yeah. I will text someone uh, to say, hey, you know, um, Shalise gave me your phone number. And um, this is Pam Ostrowski with Alzheimer's Family Consulting. And I hear that you're in a situation where you have a loved one with dementia. Uh, would you like to set up a complimentary 30 minute session to see if maybe I can help you out to make this a lot less stressful and grief stricken and, and overwhelming? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But there, there's so much support out there. Please nobody feel like they have to do it alone. There's just, there's just support. And, yeah. and those of us, there's a lot of us in this community that love to help. We're helpers yes. by nature. And so yes. we love the opportunity to help. Okay. Before we wrap up, I want to go back to something you said earlier when you talked about identity theft. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about that? 
Yes. So it's not the identity theft that where somebody takes your social security number. It's as caregivers and as someone who's been on the journey for 14 years and three years with one parent and 14 with the other, you are constantly thinking about them. Are they okay? Are they walking in the mall? Did somebody get lost? Is someone going to hit dad's car? Is dad going to hit somebody else's car? Uh, you know, just a, just a massive number of thoughts that are just worrisome. And, you know, then you're thinking about their financial situation and when, you know, are we going to be able to pay the bills? And then there's the medical situation. How many different decisions and medications do we need to be tracking? Um, if you have any sort of care help, um, you know, monitoring those people, making sure they understand what your loved one doesn't or does love. So you start to see how big this balloon of care actually is for a caregiver. And when your loved one passes, your identity as a caregiver, whether you're actually physically taking care of the individual or you are a loved one who's monitoring all of this stuff as I was while my parents lived in assisted and memory care, when that, that all goes away, there's like a really dark hole. There's a big gap yeah. where all of that stuff goes away. I mean, even events. So I used to watch, I used to listen to a particular radio show on the way in to see mom and on the way out. And the first Saturday when, after she passed, I was like, oh, I missed my show. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, wow, my whole life has changed, even down to what radio shows I listen ah. to. And, and being able to then figure out who am I now that I'm not their daughter taking care of them and I'm just this person. You know, a lot of times we relate to, we see our position amongst other people. So if you're a mother or, you know, a, a grandmother or whatever it might be, you see yourself as that person and that, that identity. So when that identity shifts, it's jarring. And, you know, a lot of spouses have the same problem as adult children, where it's like, wow, you know, people say, oh, well, they're in a better place. And it's like, well, I'm not. Um, you know, things have changed dramatically for me. How do I rebuild my life to fit the space that's now a void? That's, that's gotta be huge. Almost like your purpose in every day was wrapped around this. And so what is my purpose now? What is, right. why am I getting And that's why I called it identity theft is yeah. that your identity as a caregiver is stolen as part of this passing. Wow. And now who are you? What's yeah. your identity? That's huge. Um, is there anything that you feel, any other message or anything that you feel like we haven't covered that you would like to just say to caregivers or someone embarking on this journey? I would say that it's important for you to build a plan, just like you get all your legal documents set up. You need to have a dementia care plan with these triggers that I've talked about. And there's so many more. I have eight stepping stones of this journey where we where we kind of work through and denial of, well, this is just part of old age. Well, guess what? It's not, it is not natural for people to get dementia. So when you see those signs, you need to start preparing for it. Even if the doctor says, oh, it's mild cognitive impairment, <coughs> excuse me. So at that point, you need a plan. You need to figure out what the next four, eight, 10, in my case, 14 years is going to look like so that you're prepared for it because it will change. It'll rock your world 
And this is not a heart attack. It's not a stroke. It's not cancer. It's very different because this person is disappearing on you. And it's over a unique period of time. Each person is individual. Their journey with dementia varies. What symptoms they have, how fast it accelerates. Sometimes I've heard of people being diagnosed and passing within a year. And then other times like us, 14, 15 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's degenerative, but not necessarily physically degenerative. Right. And, and most actually it's kind of odd, but most people with dementia have great physical shape. They're in yeah. great shape, which means they're going to live forever, but they're going to disappear on you. Yeah. Which means you're mourning over a very long period of time or more than once because you lose mom or dad kind of more than once really. Well, and it's, it's called the uh, ambiguous loss. Dr. Dr. Boss has a book called ambiguous loss that describes it. And I struggle with that term because to me, it was anything but ambiguous. It was in my face, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. for 14 years. Yeah. And, and it's also the emotional roller coaster has to do with mom saying my name one day, hadn't heard her say my name for three years. She never said it again, but she said it then. And I heard her voice. Well, you know, she was non-vocal for seven years. That was amazing, yeah. but it was a moment in time. Yeah. Um, so, so one quick disclaimer, um, it happens all the time, but I always try to, um, I'm not an attorney, I'm a licensed fiduciary. So mm -hmm. I, I just want to make sure you don't come across as a legal expert or, okay. um, I've been working, my husband's an attorney and we've worked together for almost 20 years, but, um, I'm not a licensed attorney in the state of Arizona. Okay. Um, and, uh, really quick. It's not that simple. Where can we get your book and how can we contact you? Like with all our sticky desks, where, where <laughs> yeah. can we contact you if, um, if we want to contact you? So you can purchase the book on Amazon, either as an ebook or as a print soft copy book. Uh, in addition to that, you can buy it at Barnes and Noble or any of your favorite outlets. And then to reach me, if you have more questions, you I do offer uh, uh, the first 30 minutes for free. So if you know things go well and we finish the conversation in 30 minutes, great. And otherwise we'll talk about next steps and you can reach me at Pam at it's not that simple.com. Awesome. Pam, thank you for talking to me and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with all of us. Well, thank you. This was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.